Hello and welcome to Oxtails, the podcast that serves up rich and surprising stories about food and how it makes us who we are, from the world's longest-running conference on food, the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether, and this is episode two of the first season of Oxtails. But if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that we've actually released a few episodes last year, before we decided to launch a whole season. So you might recognize some stories, but bear with us. We have some fantastic new ones this season, and even more coming season two this fall. So hit that subscribe button and you won't miss a single bite. Now on to today's story. Awful. O-F-F-A-L, is a cut, usually of meat, usually organ meat, that is unwanted or unvalued, cast off, entrails, guts, and end cuts. The 2016 Oxford Food Symposium's theme was awful, rejected and reclaimed foods. Many of the presenters focused on how this much maligned culinary category has a deep history and arouses strong feelings. There were papers about haggis, about food waste and changing diets, and about liver. But as with any category, there are always exceptions that challenge the conditions of the category itself. And for French foie gras producer Guillemette Bartouille, the world's most expensive liver is one such challenger. My name is Guillemette Bartouille. I'm a French foie gras producer from the southwest of France. I think that... Foie gras is a really interesting topic to talk about offal because it embodies the delicious uh, tension between the anatomical expectation of, the, of liver and at the same time throughout the um, centuries and throughout history it disrupts the same category. So it is an offal and it's not an offal at the same time. So that's why I call it the quantum offal. For something to be quantum it has to occupy two states at once. And that's just what Guillemette says foie gras does as an offal. In French, foie gras means fatty liver, and it's the liver of a duck or goose that has been force-fed grain over a two-week period until it engorges with fat. A minimum of 300 grams for ducks and 400 grams for goose. You might have tasted foie gras, and if you have, it's more likely you've tasted the sweeter low-temperature cooked style that Guillemette says people outside of southwest France prefer. Sweeter, softer, a bit has nutty notes. And people in southwest France, however, tend to prefer the high-temperature cooked style of foie gras, which is a bit more bitter. Both are categorically different from the taste and texture of the infamous liver of liver and onions, so much that you almost can't call foie gras liver. I mean, of course, foie gras is related to the liver category because foie gras is liver, so therefore it's an awful. But when you fatten a liver, uh, it also just becomes another product uh, from a taste point of view, from a texture point of view, and from also its use in the kitchen. It's, it has become something completely different than liver. So then, at the same time, it does not satisfy a lot of the offal category. Foie gras is the liver that is, and is not, a liver. The quantum offal. But, as we'll learn from Guillemette, foie gras challenges the offal category from more than just a gustatory level. It embodies centuries of change in French culture, 
and the present-day tensions and how people think about food, farming, and fat. So we based since my grandpa in Pérorat, uh, which is a really small village in between Lelande and the Basque Country. Guillemet grew up in southwest France, the third generation of a family business of specialty meat producers. Her grandfather became a charcutier as a young man, which in the southwest of France, the birthplace of foie gras, meant learning to process the livers of the ducks and geese from local farms. The location of the family atelier is also perfectly placed for their other specialty, smoked salmon. It's a longer river where it's the last river in France where we can fish wild salmon. And that's also why we nowadays smoke salmon. But that's the other part of the business. But despite an idyllic childhood in her village, Guillemette wanted to explore the world outside of the family business. You know, it's when you're a teenager and you try to think what you're going to become in your life. And <laughs> I loved physics and science. And I also really liked philosophy when I was in high school. Guillemette's parents encouraged her to satisfy her academic yearnings in a gastronomical setting. So after a year of trying out French physics school, she packed her bags and traveled to the University of Gastronomic Sciences in Italy, also known as the Slow Food University, a hub for learning about gastronomy through a traditional lens. But when she got there, she was shocked by the perspectives some of her classmates had toward the world she came from. Yeah, I come from an area in, in France where um, food is really important. And traditional food is quite important. But then I went to Italy, where you have people from all over the world with a really slow foody mind, so trying to save the world and being vegetarian and telling you what's good and bad. So I was really fr confronted with, yeah, with these people. You know, most of them didn't even know what foie gras was. They just had a really negative image of it. And... We were friends, but we were always discussing, oh, discussing about those issues. Her friends had a negative image of foie gras, not only because they were vegetarian, but because they had heard bad things about the procedure used to produce it. A lot of people, when they talk about foie gras, they have really uh, anthropomorphic uh, point of view. So always comparing it to humans or what we would feel. So... First, I just tried to explain what was the duck um, physiology. And then I, of course, tried to explain the way we do it in a traditional way. What she's referring to is the technique known as gavage, which is the force feeding of the duck with grain the final weeks before slaughter so that its liver transforms into foie gras. So what you do when you breed ducks is you train them to have a really flexible sac. So then when you do the gavage, you fulfill that sac and they have um, half a day to digest it. As time went on, however, and as the class interacted with farmers and producers from all over, the vegetarians slowly began to see foie gras less from that anthropomorphic perspective and more from her perspective, the producer's perspective. But, you know, they started as vegetarian and because we were traveling around the world, meeting producers and actually knowing people, you know, after a while they, they did eat meat and maybe knowing the food system, it's a bit less white and black. 
After graduating from the Slow Food University, Guillemet realized that there were a lot of people with misconceptions about many traditional foods, and especially about foie gras. So she decided to learn more about it, perhaps in an attempt to better defend it. I went to do a master in food geography at the Sorbonne, Paris 4. I did my master thesis on foie gras and how corn, when it was introduced from South America or Central America, um, influenced the development of foie gras in the southwest of France. And here is where the story of our quantum offal continues. Guillemette described a culture of fat in southwest France. What I call the culture of fat is that the main aim of fattening gooseed ducks was to produce fat. Fat was so important because it's so such a rich nutrient. It's in a peasant culture where food is not abundant, uh, and especially in, in regions where you have seasons. So you have to keep or store food from the richest season to the other. By putting meat in fat, you stop oxidation and you stop most of the fermentation and you can preserve meat really easily. You know, you can store it at room temperature and it's quite an easy technology, let's say. This was how French peasants ate throughout the Middle Ages, eating jars of confit, duck and goose and sometimes pork if they were lucky. And then, at the end of the 1500s, something happened that would eventually change all of this. Corn arrived in the southwest of France at the end of the 16th century. The climate corresponds pretty well. Like, it's a humid climate, it rains a lot, but it's also hot in summer or warm. Of course, in the Americas, corn had been a staple crop for thousands of years. But in Europe, this large kerneled foreign grain was not readily accepted. But, like, it took a while before the local culture really had, like, accepted this new variety. And first it was only used by really poor peasants because it was not a taxed cereal. So they could cultivate a few grains in their backyards and use it as feed and also use it to feed their animals. And since it wasn't considered a crop, it wasn't taxed, which allowed poorer farmers to use it to pad their food budgets, not only for their animals, but for themselves. Corn is a really interesting cereal because it always has been used for, I mean, always, at least in Europe. It has been used in to feed animals and to, as a food for humans. But then in the 18th century, an agronomist named Augustin Parmentier, who rose to fame for his work popularizing the potato, decided to do the same for corn and developed methods to increase its production. Suddenly corn became a valuable crop with high yields and slowly became more integrated into mainstream food culture. Because previously you always had a tension, I mean, between the food you would, the feed you would give to your animals and your own food. But because of corn production increased, the share could be changed a bit and more corn could be given to animals. And while this innovation in corn was going on, so were a lot of other changes in France. There was the emergence of the bourgeoisie, wealthy city dwellers who didn't farm. There was the development of what we think of today as traditional French cuisine. And with all that extra corn came the emergence of that force-feeding technique known as gavage. 
all of those aspects together make that the foie gras culture emerged um, mainly during the 19th century. I mean, the foie gras culture, the way we kind of know it nowadays. And this is key. Suddenly, people realized that you could intentionally produce this delicious fatty liver that until then had only occurred by chance, spontaneously, when you overfed ducks and geese. It marked a shift, Guillemette says, from the culture of fat toward a culture of foie gras. Let's say that for like a, a few decades or even a century, you had the development of the foie gras culture, but peasants would still confit a lot of meat for themselves. So they will sell foie gras and just keep a few for like special event for themselves, but they, w- they would keep a lot of the meat for themselves and confit it. So you had both cultures living together. That is, the culture of fat and the culture of foie gras coexisted for a while, in relative gastronomical harmony. While the growing foie gras industry was aimed at producing liver, the farmers and producers still ate the rest of the animal as confit. And that was how it went up until the 1960s. But all of that changed when the world started to think about fat in a different way. And the duck breast, or magret as it's called in French, was the first to see the change. Before 63, I think, if I remember properly, uh, no one had grilled the duck breasts in the world. Like, all duck breasts were confit. Grilled here means cooked in some way other than confit, which is cooked and submerged in its own fat, if you recall. But then along came a chef named André Daguerre and the Nouvelle Cuisine movement, who introduced a radical departure from the culture of fat and confit when he began grilling duck breast. It's hard to imagine now, since even in France, most meat is eaten cooked, sans confit. But it was a big change. It's a big sign of a shifting culture, let's say. I mean, of course, the switch from culture of fat to a, a foie gras culture has also happened before, but that was like the last thing where Magre actually was no longer confit, even in most of the rural area, and became a grilled product that you could eat and store in the fridge or even freeze, and then you could eat it fresh. With a world focused on eating lighter, the technique of confit slowly receded to the corners of culinary tradition, and with more intensive foie gras production, the duck and goose meat along with the tradition of fat, became more and more devalued. And the meat almost became the waste, which is like the opposite from the fat culture, where the meat, actually the fattened meat and the fat was the aim, and the foie gras could occur, but it was like more surprise than anything else. So after the 60s, 70s, the whole goal is to produce foie gras, and the, yeah, the meat is not valued the way that it used to. The quantum switch had finally occurred. Foie gras became the focus of an entire industry, and the meat? Well, it took on the symbolic place of the awful, the byproduct. And then something else started to happen that has implications for the awfulness of foie gras. And it has to do with how people like Guillemette's classmates from the Slow Food University viewed it. So now, nowadays, foie gras could be considered as an ethical awful for some people. It's really rejected, let's say. It's considered uh, malign, mainly from an ethical point of view. Foie gras began to draw public scrutiny for being inhumane due to gavage. 
But what's interesting about this is that one of the definitions of an awful is something that is rejected or maligned. Has the rejection of foie gras on these ethical grounds made it somehow more awful-like than before? What I find interesting is that people are reclaiming the awfulness of foie gras. So they are reclaiming, in a way, the fact that a foie gras is a liver. Because in a way, the, the ducks are not force-fed anymore. They are, in a way, fattened. What she's talking about here is what's known as the natural foie gras movement, where the ducks are not force-fed, but encouraged to gorge themselves, something that they instinctively do in the fall before migration. And with this technique of uh, producing foie gras, you kind of go back to the, the fat culture, where ducks can feed themselves as much as they want, but you will not gorge them. So a foie gras could occur sometime. A fatty liver still occurs with this method, but not usually one that matches the industry specifications for foie gras. So these natural foie gras, as they're called, are smaller and more liver-like. More awful-like. And since the ducks are just being fattened, not force-fed, you could say that the culture of fat has resurfaced. So it's interesting how a really postmodern concept is claiming back, in a way, an old tradition. Once she was finished her master's, Guillemette got an opportunity to study foie gras in another, more experimental setting. Her former classmate at the Slow Food University, Ben Reed, was working at this new radical lab for gastronomical experimentation, started by the famous restaurant Noma, the Nordic Food Lab in Copenhagen. Just steps away from the doors of Noma is the Nordic Food Lab. At the Nordic Food Lab, Guillemette encountered a similar postmodern approach to food. Just like with the natural foie gras movement, a high value is placed on things being natural or wild, sometimes regardless of their taste. What was really interesting for me at the lab also was that we used the word deliciousness all the time. But we were also, I think, in a culture where um, the meaning of deliciousness was completely being redefined. I mean, maybe this sounds a bit... Uh, I mean, it's going to be sounds really French, but that's what I am. <laughs> Based on a, I think, on a more intellectual understanding on food, uh, it was it was good because it was forage or because it was cool or because it was really hedgy. But sometimes it didn't taste good. But it didn't really matter neither. Despite this, she enjoyed the lab and explored how something as traditional as foie gras could exist within this foraging-centric paradigm. I did a, a small research with um, Swedish hunters where they would hunt geese at the end of August and beginning of September when they start their migration south. And that's exactly when the fields have been harvested. So the geese gorge themselves and take a lot of energy before the migration. So um, hunters would hunt geese for themselves and cut them open and they would send me their livers. And a lot of them had uh, fatty livers. Of course, you can't call it a foie gras because it's not as big as a foie gras in anything. But it has changed color. The texture is different. It has become a smooth, pale, um, beige liver. After a while, something didn't sit entirely right for Guillemette in this way of thinking. If she was confused by the natural foie gras movement, what was she doing taking one step further to wild foie gras? And, more importantly, if she had spent a good part of her years away from home defending her traditions to those on the outside who didn't understand them, 
Maybe it was time to defend them from the inside. I mean, after Nordic Food Lab, um, I was uh, 26, 27. I, I had traveled and studied for the last 10 years, and I was trying to look for something that is maybe a bit less ego-centered, like in a way, those, those years were fantastic, but it was... Uh, It felt like it was only about me and only about learning, you know, in a really occidental, egocentric, uh, I don't know. I, I just felt something a bit more concrete and a bit more based in a territory where I could uh, build something. Guillemette finally decided to return home, back to the family charcuterie business, where her biggest challenge wasn't to experiment, but to learn the centuries-old skills required to keep her tradition alive. So I started, um, yeah, I started slicing salmon and cutting duck, buttering duck and making foie gras. And But just as she craved tradition while in the academic world, Guillemette found that after a few months elbow deep in duck and salmon, she needed a little bit more intellectual stimulation. So I decided to write a paper uh, for the Oxford Symposium. And I thought it would be great, you know, working manually or with my hand during the week and trying to write something during the weekend. But it was actually really, really hard to switch from one mindset to the other. It took me every week, it took me the whole Saturday to actually manage to think differently and maybe be able to write something on Sundays. Keeping up these mindsets became a kind of mental gymnastics. Weekday charcuterie, weekend academic. And what happened was that both voices ended up being in the paper. A lot of the research come from my master thesis, which was like an academical, geographical work. But when I wrote it again for the Oxford Symposium, I tried to bring some uh, artisan and producer knowledge and trying to see how this knowledge can be complementary to a more academical analysis of a situation, let's say. Maybe this is what being a traditional producer looks like today, having to keep both mindsets at the same time. Guillemette is learning to know her work intimately from the inside, but she can also see it from the outside and explain to the rest of us, to cooks and chefs, academics, food historians, and students of food, why it is so important. So maybe it's not just foie gras that exists in two states at once. Maybe Guillemette is also a little bit quantum herself. Thanks to Guillemette Bartui. You can find her paper from the 2016 symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, with editorial oversight provided by the brilliant Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. This show is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Symposium, with a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ketza and Eric Satie, and for a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp and Instagram at Oxfood Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and please give us a good review. We're a new show, and it really helps. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with some more Ox Tales. See you then.